Welcome to the Tolenstone Podcast. I'm Garrett Ryan, and my guest today is trivia grandmaster and current Jeopardy host, Ken Jennings. Uh, Ken, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Oh, it is, I don't like I, hearing current before my job description. That's a little <laughs> ominous. Oh, yes, yes, of course. No. Current like and doubtless enduring. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> duly noted, duly noted. Um, well, anyway, uh, Ken, um, I want to talk today about trivia, both ancient and modern. And uh, I have never been on Jeopardy or any other game show. Um, but like you, I'm a veteran of the college quiz bowl circuit. Um, you know, a battle-scarred veteran, all that good stuff. Um, and uh, so, of course, uh, when your book uh, Brainiac came out in 2006, I was a college sophomore then uh, in the agonies of my college quiz bowl career. Um, so I picked it up and read all about um, both your record-setting Jeopardy run um, and the broader world of trivia in this country. And I was very impressed when reading the book about, I guess, the, the breadth and the depth of the trivia fascination, um, how wide-reaching it is in this country, and how historical it is in many ways. Um, and so before we launch into that, um, I hope you won't mind if we begin with a, a trivia question for you. Um, oh. But I think you're going to get it. I, I feel pretty confident about this. So uh, the category is, it's iconic. For 200 entirely fictional dollars, um, <clears throat> the original game, the original version of this iconic game show debuted in 1964 with host Art Fleming. Oh, Ken? I actually, uh, I think it's funny when people on game shows lean into mics. Uh, oh, I know this one, Garrett. What is Jeopardy? <laughs> I had a funny feeling you'd be all over that one, and uh, any fantastic form on the the lean there. I was that uh, you really you sold it. You sold it. Um, M U N vibe. <laughs> yeah, they'll be replayed later, right? Um, but anyway, um, so of course the current version of Jeopardy's been on the air since 1984. I think that, that that's correct. Um, which puts it in the same elite league as The Simpsons, uh, a few soap operas. And a Nebraska's backyard backyard gardener, I think it's called. It's the longest running gardening show in the U.S. in like the 1953 or something. It's a call-in show too. I love it. That's um, good trivia. It, yeah, yeah. I hope it comes up sometime. But anyway, um, so why do you think Jeopardy has lasted so long? What's the perennial appeal of Jeopardy? Well, you know, Jeopardy had pretty good. In hindsight, Jeopardy had pretty good historical luck both times that it came onto the air. In, mm -hmm. in 64 and then again in 1984. Um, you know, in 64, there had been years without any quiz shows as a result of the scandals of the 50s. So mm -hmm. it kind of had an open field. And again, in the 80s, it was kind of a fallow period as well. Trivia is kind of a boom and bust cycle in American mm -hmm. history. And, uh, you know, 1984, the year Jeopardy came back, turned out to be the year of, you know, one of the biggest trivia fads in recent memory, the Trivial Pursuit. Uh, Fuhrer when everybody owned that game. And so both times Jeopardy was just right on the wave and in a position to be kind of the quiz show, America's quiz show, we say backstage. <laughs> and it's really, I mean, the format is perfect, obviously. It's a, it's a unbelievably perfectly constructed show, but there's a lot of well-formatted game shows that are not in their 58th year, you know? Um, and I think by virtue of being the kind of the only show of its kind in the ecosystem in those two moments, Jeopardy was able to just become synonymous with quiz shows and build a massive audience. And now it's, it's kind of at the point of ritual viewing for a lot of the country. <laughs> um, it's no longer a show you watch. It's, it's an institution. It's uh. the thing you don't call grandma during. It's <laughs> the thing you have fond memories of watching with college friends. Um, it's really, you know, at the risk of sounding like a, a old-timey TV ad, it's kind of part of the rhythm of, of people's lives now. And, mm -hmm. you know, not a lot of shows like that. We take, you know, Simpsons in its 30-whateverth year, but, you know, a lot of people catching up on streaming, a lot of people watching old episodes but haven't seen one in 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, Jeopardy's as, you know, Jeopardy ratings are increasing. We're... In weeks when there's no football, sometimes we're the most watched show in America. Wow. And uh, I think it just has a lot to do with the emotional resonance it has for people as a kind of a source of stability and you know, the illusion of permanence, at least. Mm -hmm. Oh, that, that's fascinating. That idea beyond the format being you know, itself very appealing and very uh, you know, kind of universal, that it has right that this ritual aspect, which has made it such a cultural juggernaut you know, for all these years. Um, 
And you mentioned, you know, the, 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 the scandal before Jeopardy's initial run in 64, you know, the, the quiz show scandals. Um, is that you think what killed the initial, the first generation of trivia game shows, you know, the uh, 21, the $64,000 question, all of those? Yeah. Um, you know, game shows were such an obvious use of, you know, they're an American invention as far as I understand it. And, mm -hmm. you know, I consider game shows one of the great American art forms. You know, they're right up there with jazz and comic books for me. Um, but I'm I'm kind of a deeply weird person, uh, and the the idea of a of a competition format with contestants was kind of obvious. And the early radio and TV programmers knew this. The same night that the first US TV stations got their licenses, they played game shows. They played mm -hmm. TV versions of of the big radio game hits, and uh, but this didn't become a real mass culture fad until the fifties. With the advent of the big money game shows, a Supreme Court decision in the mid 50s paved the way for shows to start giving out thousands of dollars. The, the court ruled anonymously, unanimously, this is not a uh, not a lottery. Um, this is a game of skill, and therefore this is not regulated by gambling laws. And if these shows want to have sixty four thousand dollar prizes, well, well that's legal. Hmm. So at that point, you know, America really took notice. Wow, like these, this, every man and every woman could win sixty four thousand dollars tonight. And, you know, back then that would mean half or two thirds of the country might literally be watching as somebody mm -hmm. won a big prize by nailing a quiz question or, or went down in flames. Um, but of course, as it turned out, and I think this is the kind of thing that might be might be memory hold a bit, if not for that 1994 movie. As it turned out, all the shows quickly became rigged in order to get more exciting outcomes and better storylines, really. A lot of them had had pro wrestling style storylines <laughs> where. A contestant would lose, but then his spouse would come back and get revenge. Or it was all extremely implausible. And as it turned out, holy faked. Uh, mm -hmm. Contestants were getting handed answers and outcomes in advance. And the funny thing is, people took it seriously. Uh, this, when when word leaked, when a disgruntled contestant leaked word about it having lost to a to a kind of a newer, brighter star on the show Twenty One, he went to the press, and there were congressional hearings. And to this day, if you're backstage on any game show, pretty much everything about your day is kind of rigorously organized as a result of the laws that were passed in the wake of those hearings. To be a contestant on Jeopardy today still means you're sequestered like a jury and you're trooped around together like a chain gang. And it's it's very much like you're joining the CIA. You know, the security precautions are very obvious and adhered to very strictly. And it's because all these game shows have independent auditors. And we all know that if something were to not be above board or to not look above board, there could be congressional hearings and jail sentences again. So, um, you know, the in the industry, the the hearings had a long had a long echo, a long tail. Mm -hmm. And I really do think that's why there were no question and answer shows on on the air ten years later when uh, when Merv Griffin came up with Jeopardy, Merv and Joanne Griffin. <laughs> Yeah, it had been, been tarnished so comprehensively by the the public memory of the the hearings and everything. Oh, yeah, that, that's really remarkable. I guess you know, for as a quiz bowler, so you know, obviously low tech. You know, people walk in with a folder full of you know the questions. You know, slap it on the desk, and that's all there is to it. But of course, there's no money involved there, so <laughs> perhaps that's the great difference. And maybe um, as you and I both know <laughs> from our quiz bowl experience, you know, going to tournaments by mm -hmm. NAQT and other organizations, you know, security has to be kept tightly there. And when, when oh, tournaments sure. have been naive about, um, oh, we'll just hand out these question packets in advance, mm -hmm. there have been a few isolated cases where somebody got in and hacked the files or somebody pretended to be someone else and got a paper copy. And, you know, it does make you wonder why people would occasionally cheat at these pursuits with no prizes and... Well, and I, I where know. the only fun is trying to come up with the answer, exactly right but... is, is proving how much you know and yeah right. I feel like even if even if it is an ego trip that it kind of compromises the whole enterprise you know that you had to cheat to win and yeah there was a big right. thing I think in uh, one of the ACF championships in 2011 or something where you know someone had seen a packet you know and they won fraudulently and then they changed the champion so really you know the stuff of you know uh, a list movie but give it time um, and. Uh, you know, interestingly, so you mentioned how it's so faddish a trivia in this country, and how you know the, the first flare-up of this this periodic uh, obsession that America has with trivia um, was in the late twenties um, with Ask Me Another, um, this book that became a massive bestseller. Um, why do you think this moment and that particular book um, 
happened to be the perfect collision, you know, for making trivia uh, come alive in this country? Was it a matter of mass media or something else? I think that's really the first moment where trivia goes from the recreation of, hey, let's all share fun facts and remember them. These are amazing. Um, where it actually goes becomes a competitive pursuit. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know of, of too many clear antecedents to ask me another book where it's like, hey, you play along and see how many see how mm-hmm. many of these you can answer. And I think it's a uh, the groundwork was laid by a few different things. Uh, first of all, there is those amazing facts books, specifically Robert mm-hmm. Ripley. You know, Ripley's Believe It or Not was read by tens of millions of people in the Sunday paper. It was a mega phenomenon in the 20s and 30s. He was getting like millions of letters a week at one point. Oh wow! And and so people were accustomed to like, hey, this is this is the cool thing is seeing what the world's smallest hummingbirds and biggest <laughs> balls of twine are. Um, this is a fun thing. The second thing I think is that um, uh, puzzles were a fad at the moment. The crossword had just been introduced, and suddenly there were a bunch of these puzzle bestsellers. Some of them puzzles that dated back kinds of puzzles that dated back hundreds of years, mm-hmm. rebuses and anagrams and whatnot. But now publishers were all chasing this. What's the next crossword? You know, mm. what can we sell a million copies of? And I think the third and most interesting antecedent is actually uh, comes out of World War One. The U.S. Army had begun intelligence testing mm. of the troops in World War One as part of the the then kind of fashionable obsession with quantifying ability. And this ties into eugenics and right, probably right. all kinds of ugly stuff. But the army was very into giving every inductee a test and seeing, hey, what are your aptitudes? And this will decide whether you're a radio man or you're infantry or, you know, there's something in your file. And people were just, this is the first time that IQ exists. And people are just Mm -hmm. fascinated by the idea that you can answer a few questions and the paper or the government will tell you whether you're a a smarty pants or whether you're kind of average or whether you're a real dolt. Um, (laughs) You know, for reasons probably noble and ignoble, people love this idea. And so the idea that you could take a test and be smart or not, we don't realize this, but this had not occurred to anyone until the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the first uh, the first point where that breaks into recreation. And hey, what if we did this for fun instead of for, you know, war department staffing? Right. Well, that is fascinating. It is part of a larger cultural phenomenon that was kind of comes to a head with the trivia. And then it seems to flare out pretty quickly, though, right? You know, there's the book that sells, you know, hundreds of thousands of copies in the first year and then just kind of fades away, whether it's the depression or something else. Uh, I don't know what it is that seems to uh, kill it off so quickly. It seems to happen. It seems to happen often. You know, when Trivial Pursuit first came out, mm-hmm. you know, it was in every game closet in America that year. And... It's the kind of who wants to be a millionaire, you know, in the right, summer right. of if you remember the year 2000, when mm-hmm. people were everybody just couldn't wait to see people were jamming the phone lines. What's going to happen? Who's going to win the million? Um, but for whatever reason, uh, at least for its first century, American trivia was a boom and bust economy. People were into it for a summer or a year and then mm-hmm. their eyes kind of wandered. Um <laughs> And it's not true for, you know, for hardcore people, you know, the kind of people that would play quiz bowl in college or would try out for Jeopardy. Um, I think it's, there's something more enduring to it, but there's a big casual audience that just wants to try their hand or, you know, have Mm. that thrill of competing or, or watch someone try to win the big prize. And then Mm. it flares out and it's something new. Right. Yeah. So the the, the perils of consumerism and market saturation and everything else. And, huh. So, you know, in Brainiac, you know, you describe trivia as a 20th century phenomenon, um, and it certainly is, both in the sense that it becomes competitive for the first time um, with Ask Me Another and, you know, things of that ilk. Um, and even the word itself, trivia, being used for uh, bits of not terribly useful information um, is also a 20th century invention. That's um, a baby boomer phenomenon. That was the boomers that becoming, yeah, becoming very precious about, you know, uh, they're going to college and then uh, kind of wanting to trade questions with each other about right, their right. beloved radio serials of their childhood <laughs> and what's mm-hmm. Tonto's horse name. And um, and so the word trivia gets coined for that because suddenly it's mm-hmm. not even it's not there's no not even attempt to make it ab- academic or, uh, right. or seem like it's stuff that you would want to know. It really is just like, what's the effluvia of childhood you remember? Mm-hmm. And then again, you know, we still see the legacy of this in America today. Baby boomers. Um, uh, idealizing and nostalgizing their own childhood to the point of uh, 
to the point of comedy. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, all those shows, I Love the 60s, whatever else. Um, um, and that is fascinating that it, it kind of achieves sentience um, by being hived off from the rest of culture, you know, trivia, which is sort of, um, I think, part of what makes it so distinctive as a phenomenon, you know, in our, our day and age and so different from what was existed in the ancient world. So obviously, um, like I said, you're, you're right. You know, there, there's no way around trivia not being a 20th century phenomenon. But it's uh, there are in, important or interesting precedents, I think, in what I do, which is the Greeks and the Romans, um, where, as we call it, esoterica, really, you know, where knowing a lot about a certain canon has an enormous amount of cultural cachet. It's, a lot, a lot, it's a, an important form of uh, social currency that's traded about um, in all kinds of interesting ways. And so, you know, a few months ago, I was talking with uh, – oh, go ahead, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, I'm really inter- like, I'm all ears because when I was okay. writing Brainiac, you know, I spent a year or two trying to find, you know, what are the earliest antecedents mm-hmm. of this kind of thing? And I really couldn't get earlier than like 17th century London coffee houses, mm-hmm. you know, like that was kind of as far back as I could find people doing facts for fun, you know, mm-hmm. and not just for, you know, with, with no pretense at, at academic value. Um so I, yeah, I'm interested to see what you think the classical roots are. Yeah, and, and maybe now roots is the best way to put it. There's sort of kind of strange parallels, um, and you know, I, I'm not sure ever what became fun. They wouldn't admit it in their treatises and such, but um, it certainly looks familiar, at least you know, from someone who's you know, at least wants to see it looking familiar. Um, and so, uh, well, anyways, I was saying I was talking with with Andrew Hart at NAQT, he's a, a former Quiz Bowl colleague, and uh, he asked me that question. You know, did the Greeks and Romans have trivia? And my knee-jerk response was no, you know, that that's all modern, you know, that that didn't exist then. Um, But the more I thought about it, the more I saw um, the same impulses, at least, that feed the trivia craze today, feed things like Jeopardy. Um, Obviously, people um, who love trivia have always been around. They've always found ways to, uh, you know, uh, I guess, uh, satisfy that fetish in different ways, Um, but uh, often very different ways from how we think about trivia today. And so... To begin with, um, you mentioned in Brainiac these things called uh, commonplace books, um, which are created, you know, they go way back, of course. People would, would read, you know, passages, whatever else, write them down in a book. But they become a big deal in the 19th century um, with this guy named uh, John Timms, who writes a couple books that are essentially large commonplace books, um, but really function as early trivia encyclopedias. So you talk a bit about this, this genre of commonplace books, as you see it as the, the role it played in the history of trivia, of our, our history of trivia. Mm-hmm. It, they're playful. You know, the commonplace mm-hmm. book, when it started out with the Elizabethans, it was really kind of like a, you know, like a dream journal or whatever you call <laughs> those, you know, people just writing down inspirational right, right. quotes. It was kind of a personal scrapbook. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the 19th century, when a few people began to publish their uh, their uh, commonplace books, it began to kind of cross over with like farmer's almanacky kind of mm-hmm. stuff um, with uh, kind of interesting facts from natural history. And by the time John Timms publishes his bestseller, Things Not Generally Known, and it's hundreds of sequels, um, it very much is just kind of a proto-Ripley's Believe It or Not, <laughs> where he's he's kind of answering qu- questions like, you know, did the did the ancient Egyptians have umbrellas? And, you know, mm-hmm. how much would the moon actually warm you up? You know, if you know it shines like the sun, right, is right. it is it warm, you know, could it? heat up a gram of water, you know, and this is post enlightenment. So people are now thinking, well, you know, I could answer these questions and they become kind of proto, um, Randall Monroe's, you know, like the, mm-hmm. uh, the guy that does the uh, XKCD strip, he's got these what right, if right. books where he, where he kind of does the pseudo academic deep dives into mm-hmm. kind of silly, silly quantifiable questions. And so these books would be full of these kind of facts and investigations, um, and now, again, all pretense of uh, this is stuff that a scholar should know <laughs> is kind of gone. And it really is much more like, um, you know, did you know stuff at parties? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you start. It's real science. Don't get me wrong. Sure. But the idea is that, you know, you have something to bore your friends with now because you've learned <laughs> something crazy about how the optics of light make color or how many stones were in the pyramids, things like that. And because there's mm-hmm. less this is the 19th century. There's less popular culture. So a lot of this does go back to classical times. You know, it's, Oh yeah. A lot of it's kind of dubious stuff from, from Pliny, you know, about how mm-hmm. there's 
you know, there's people in Africa with with wings on the side of their head or whatever. Yeah, right. Yeah, one gigantic foot or whatever else. Um, and uh, and yeah, and what was so fun to me reading that chapter, or rather rereading it for this interview, was I immediately thought of something that's just like it, but written in around the year 200. Um, and that is so this Roman author um, by the name of Aulus Gellius um, wrote a commonplace book called Attic Nights. And it's not no one's list of the best classics ever. It's not thrilling reading by any means. It's not great literature, but it is just like that. It's a, it's a long series of questions that are answered then um, in a very esoteric sort of way. So it's like the very first question um, is, how tall was Hercules? And they try and figure out how tall he was by guessing that his foot was the measurement of the, the Olympic Stadium at Olympia and kind of multiplying that out and saying, okay, he must have been, you know, four cubits and one foot tall. It's like seven feet tall, something like that. Um, and so it goes on from there. There are all kinds of other things like um, the, the best word for red in both Greek and Latin. This goes on like, for a while. It's a very extended discussion. Um, like a nicknames of famous redders, like someone was called the courtesan, and it was like a big thing. Um, and so all these things that are in no way, you know, so it, it functions as cultural knowledge. You know, people could use this stuff at dinner parties. It was, you know, a way of showing how much you knew about things you were supposed to know about, but it was ultimately just kind of fun. It was people who knew this, you know, this canon um, of myth and of history, and were just kind of riffing off it, you know, kind of finding these little corners they could, you know, explore, shine light on, and share with other people. And now, of course, do you, uh, do you think, oh, um, let me ask you this, do you think they were answering questions that may have already existed? Like, do you think, mm -hmm. you know, in the 19th century and, and early 20th, there's this trend of newspapers having columns where you could right. write in and say, how many leaves are on the elm tree out back or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. and somebody would try to do the math for you. Like, do you think these would have been discussions at parties? How tall, how tall was Hercules? <laughs> like what, what is the right word for red? You know, well, and I'm sure, you know, this is all coming out of, I think these elite discussions, these banquets pretty much. You have, you know, a couple dozen guys, you know, who have spent the first 20 years of their life reading the classics, you know, hang out, you know, lolling over their wine, you know, they're on course number 18 or whatever it is. And they're just talking about this stuff. Um, and actually we have this wonderful literature, which I'll bring up a little bit later, that's just a, a banquet as the setting. And they're just talking about points of what amounts to trivia at incredible length. Um, you know, some of the longest works from antiquity that survived to this point are banquet literature, basically, where people are just talking about random facts. And it is very, it's not obviously, you know, not on podiums or anything, but it's a very competitive atmosphere. Like, oh, well, you know, you know this guy, but I know who got second place at that tournament, you know, that, that competition at Athens in 400 BC. Um, and so, you know, obviously having this knowledge was fun to these people to some degree, but at the same time, never was divorced from it being, you know, cultural knowledge is important to have and can be, you know, deployed at will in various social occasions. Um, yeah. I, I love the fact that there's apparently a competitive angle to it. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, that definitely. But it's, it's um, who knows more. Exactly. That's how these that's how these trivia board games function. Of course. Right. You know, you, get to, you kind of mentally flex on people, you know, and everyone's happy. Or unless that guy is. But um <laughs> Oh, and actually, I, I almost forgot, speaking of fun trivia that will never appear in Jeopardy. Um, so there actually were a couple other commonplace books that have been lost. We have Gellius's example, but few others. But uh, one was composed by an author who was known as Ptolemy the Quail. And I, I couldn't find out why he was called the Quail. If it was something about his writing style or he like, you know, really liked birds or something. But uh, yeah, Ptolemy the Quail. Uh, so impress your friends, I guess, in turn, I, if you had that ever comes up. Uh, this is very um, frustrating that a lot of this classical trivia is now unanswerable. You know, like well, exactly. No one, you know, it's we will the, never know the correct answer to why Ptolemy was called Ptolemy the Quill. Exactly. It's the, the most frustrating game of trivia pursuit ever. It's like, and the card is blank. We, we just don't freaking know. <laughs> correct answer. Um, what is scholars disagree? Scholars disagree. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Write a thesis about it now. Um, so anyway, I'm moving on with other kind of fun classical parallels. Um, you know, for those of us who love random facts, as of course both people in this interview do, um, there's a real magic in the trivia encyclopedia. You know, the book that just collects random facts. And of course, John Timms is sort of an early example of this. That was kind of dressed up as you know Q and A and more uh, exposition, I guess. But uh, like my favorite was always uh, when I was growing up, I'm from Chicago. Um, so like Cecil Adams was this, this fictional guy, you know, the, the straight dope. And he had this, this column, the Chicago Reader, we would answer in this often, you know, kind of humorous and uh, kind of aggressive way, um, answers from the teeming millions from the general public. And we'd give all this detail about, you know, why this, this was so. And I had on my childhood book, bookcase a few of these straight dope collections that would kind of flip through. And I always really enjoyed that. <laughs> <laughs> and I see I'm not alone. Also on my bookcase today. Oh, that's fantastic. 
Yeah, no, I, I always, uh, if I could ever meet the man behind Cecil Adams, that would, that would be a, a dream come true. Uh, it was just great stuff. I love the tone, love how they kind of presented all these different facts. Um, but anyway, I mean, he's the, he's the descendant of those newspaper columnists exactly. of, the, of the teens and twenties where, mm-hmm. you know, he, he would settle arguments, you know, right, right. Couples would be fighting about, well, how fast do the fingernails grow or, mm-hmm. or whatever it is. And then he actually goes to the the academic sources or the right, scholarly right. experts and, and does his best. Right. Yeah. He finds, yeah, professor fingernails or whatever that they have it out, you know, they have like a fun little illustration there from slug Sigourney, whatever his name was. Um, but, um, but anyway, do you have a personal favorite trivia encyclopedia or a book of Q and a you know, kind of how that's set up? I mean, everybody imprints on the stuff they had when they were kids. Right. Um, so for me, it was Fred Wirth's books, which mm. were called, I think the super trivia encyclopedia uh-huh. one, two, and three. I don't, I don't know if you're familiar. Um, I think it's from Brainiac. I read about them there. I believe you mentioned these are the first that. ones uh, mm-hmm. I had as a kid. Where um, you know, instead of just kind of a kind of a scatter shot, you know, here's a section on uh, geography. Here's some fun facts. These were this was uh, the pretense was that it was organized alphabetically, mm-hmm. like an encyclopedia, and you know, it would say like thirteen thirteen Mockingbird Lane, you know, and that oh, would be right. the Monsters the Address, monster, right. you know, uh-huh. and so forth. Um, and it was. You know, it was pretty random and it was lists of, this was kind of boomer era stuff. So it was lists of mm-hmm. radio characters, phone numbers and, you know, phone exchanges and silly right, things right. like that. But I could read it like pleasure reading, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there was just some sense that for a lot of these quiz kid types, there's just a sense that your 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 brain is this sponge and you can't get stuff in it fast enough. Mm-hmm. And uh, this seemed to me like, just mainlining trivia. <laughs> exactly. You know, this was this was for people with a real problem, and then that was me. <laughs> it's the, the hard drugs, right? Um, and, and yeah, I remember uh, even like when I was doing Quiz Bowl, we had these like uh, fact lists. Because I, I went to Carleton College, you know, and yes, you met Eric Hillman and the team, yeah. um, and he had uh, about 120 of these, you know, like uh, author work, you know, composer work, you know, uh, capital city, country uh, lists. And, um, yeah, so obviously it was not exactly pleasure reading or not, not initially, it didn't seem like it, but there was such a thrill and kind of, you know, recognizing the fact, you know, making a new connection. Um, anyway, more, those more are that, almost, those are almost more like a sports montage. That's like a Rocky is. training thing, you know, when you're, when you're <laughs> exactly. going through those flashcards of, right, right. of architects or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. Hunched over the desk, one lamp burning, you know, and, <laughs> um, but but anyway, um, so what, what I was I was when I thought about this question, were there ancient trivia encyclopedias? Um, in a way, there actually kind of were. So so Plutarch, you know, the famous parallel lives of the Greeks and Romans, um, wrote many other treatises that are less well known, um, even among classicists. And we group them all into this big omnibus title called uh, Moralia, even though most of them aren't really on moral subjects at all. And one of these, or a couple of these, are just called Roman questions. Um, there's another one called Greek questions, another one called, called barbarian questions that's been lost, which would have been a lot of fun, I think. But anyway, um, so Roman questions, which is, which is extant, is a, a collection of about 140 um, questions about why the Romans do weird things. And Plutarch is living under the empire, but he's a Greek um, culturally. He speaks Greek. He knows Latin, but not all that well. And so whenever he goes to Rome, he is baffled by some of the things the Romans do, so these odd Roman customs. And he writes a book that just lays out 140 questions or, about the Romans for his fellow Greeks and answers kind of like paragraph form why they do these things. And we think this is kind of like table talk. So you would ask this question to people, like why do the Romans do X or Y? And people would try to figure out the answer. And so I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, one of the early ones is, um, why do Roman women kiss their cousins on the lips? Just like whenever they see them, they kiss them on the lips. This is strange in most cultures, including to the Greeks. Um, and Plutarch gives several madcap theories that are almost totally wrong, um, as far as we can tell, including that it was a city that had been sneaking wine from the cellars, you know, things like that. Um, another one was, um, why do the Romans revere woodpeckers? And the answer is nobody actually knows, but supposedly a helpful woodpecker fed Romulus when he was a kid or something, and it's still like a thing. Um, one of the did Romans Romulus eat May, the woodpecker, or did, he, did it bring him termites or something? It fed him like yeah, little, little termites, you know, it was a very helpful woodpecker that was not devoured in the course of the myth, at least not, you know, in the, the PG version that Roman kids learned. Um, you know, so, so anyway, things like this um, that, you know, have no practical bearing, you know, nothing to do with, you know, the, the cultural canon of the Greeks is based on Homer, you know, Demosthenes, that sort of thing. It's just like, this is some crazy stuff that our Roman neighbors do. Let's talk about it. 
And so you can just see Plutarch or someone like him reading off, you know, this question. So the Romans, they're like woodpeckers, what's up with that? And people kind of tossing answers at him. And he says, well, no, actually, they, you know, Rhymus had a pet woodpecker. His name was Woody or whatever, you know, and kind of going on from there. Um, and so obviously it's different in some important ways. From a, It's not comprehensive. It has no pretense to being comprehensive in the way a modern um, encyclopedia might. But it, it has the same kind of function, I think, where it has no pretense to being you know, uh, important cultural knowledge. It's just like, here's a fun thing to talk about, to pitch questions at, and maybe learn from if you read the treatise. It's also really a spiritual ancestor of a lot of what powered kind of Ripley's Believe It or Not mm-hmm. era trivia, where there was a ton of check out these weird customs right. of these people. And a lot of that doesn't age really well because yeah, it's yeah. kind of exoticizing or ori- mm-hmm. and orientalizing or right, right. kind of, you know, portraying as barbaric, these certain cultures. Mm-hmm. But there really was a lot of gawking, even in the pages of National Geographic about, you know, you know, check out these crazy like earrings that stretch out your ears in certain <laughs> tribes or exactly. you'll never believe what they eat in Madagascar or, mm-hmm. you know, here's a language in South America where the only numbers are like one, two and many. And a lot of this right. kind of like You'll never believe these strange customs really did power a lot of, and a lot of it's because not great anthropology was being done at the oh, time. sure, right. And people were bringing back kind of half-formed theories and half-observed customs. But it's the same kind of thing you're talking about with the mm-hmm. with the Greek and Roman and, and barbarian customs, just kind of like gawking in amazement that right, others right. have different traditions. Yeah, yeah. What's up with that? Um, I guess I right. What, what passes for anthropology in the classical world pretty much is just, you know, gawking and fine prose um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, all of it. Uh, and uh, I, I would have loved to have read about barbarian questions had that survived. I'm sure that had some real ringers. Um, but anyway, to move on to some other parallels. Um, so obviously we were, we're both, um, as I said, battle-hardened veterans of College Quiz Bowl. Um, and in fact, you did visit my own my own hometown or my, my own uh, alma mater's team at Carlton College uh, the year before I showed up, unfortunately. Um, actually, though, you became part of Team Lore. Uh, you powered a question on pro wrestling, I think. People kept talking about this uh, when, when I showed up. So anyway, <laughs> you're, you're part of the, uh, the the team legend there. That could um, very well be. Like I'm often asked <laughs> what my ideal Jeopardy board would be, and nobody believes me when I, when I say how much of it would be 80s pro wrestling. <laughs> but yeah, apparently it was like a, like a first clue buzz. And anyway, there, there was much respect for that. But uh, but anyway, um, so, so um, for those of you people who aren't familiar with how College Quiz Bowl works, it's pretty much, like I said, uh, hyper-academic team Jeopardy uh, with teams of four, typically. Uh, you have packets of 20 or so questions um, on the usual batch of academic uh, subjects, so history, literature, uh, classical music, science. Um, and so you, the two teams each have a buzzer, which is sort of a, a bomb-looking device, um, which Ken is, again, I'm sure very familiar with. Kind of you get like a guitar foot pedal style thing that you buzz in on. Um, and each toss-up, um, each question is worth about 10 points, typically, unless you get an early. You get a power, which is five points extra in an NQT format. Or you get it wrong and you neg, and that's five points off. Uh, and I think we all have great neg stories. Uh, in my case, um, I once buzzed on the first clue for what turned out to be uh, Tchaikovsky's first symphony with uh, Isaac Hayes, the theme from Shaft, and thought I was really, really cool. And no, it was just Tchaikovsky. And, so close. Uh, so close. Yeah, they're both music, right? Uh, but anyway, um, so College Quiz Bowl um, is very esoteric and is proud of being esoteric, at least in the ACF and NQT formats. And um, I know that Ken, both from personal experience and from your research for Brainiac, you kind of uh, dove into the the ethos, the zeitgeist of Quiz Bowl, which has a very, um, I guess, distinctive social atmosphere. I guess, how, how do you describe, you know, kind of the, the atmosphere of a college Quiz Bowl uh, competition? I mean, there's unusual things about it. Uh, people have often traveled for hundreds or thousands of miles to get to these tournaments. So it mm-hmm. really just becomes an orgy of knowledge. You know, people will... <laughs> People will play 12-hour days in a full round robin, and then they'll mm-hmm. they'll hold pickup games at night, you know, yeah. which does not happen in the NBA Finals or the <laughs> World Series. Um, you know, there's a you know, socially there's there's a range of of uh, you know kinds of levels of uh, of social awareness and aptitude, but um, <laughs> but in general, everybody shares this kind of weird pursuit and knows it's weird. And embraces it. And there's something kind of endearing about Mm -hmm. um, just liking the questions to be as hard as they can be. Mm -hmm. And if it's something you've never heard of, you know, that's it's like an inspiration to learn more and, you know, maybe get into a whole new field or there's a real um, there's a real kind of compositional like there's like a critical movement of just enjoying 
question composition and admiring it and complimenting mm -hmm. people who have who have pulled off something new or a new subject area or a new take on an old subject area. Mm -hmm. So there's like literary criticism to it. <laughs> um, it's a fascinating scene. I still miss it. Yeah, really. It's kind of the, the, the Ars Gradia artist thing, right? You know, it really is. You're in it for the game. And um, yeah, almost a masochistic pursuit in some cases. I remember my, my first ACF Nationals, which is, you know, the hardest tournament, for those aren't familiar. Um, and, you know, the, these paragraph-long questions with things that I, as a first-year player, often it hardly knew the answer at the end of the question. And, you know, it is kind of, yeah, you're, you're in the big leagues now, in a sense to kind of, you know, you know, dive into the canon, learn all you can. Um, but it is... It's aspirational. Uh, it's an aspirational yeah. thing. It's, it's, it's really why most people watch Jeopardy. They'll get a couple yeah, yeah. right every night and they'll feel good about themselves because mm -hmm. they're... They're hanging with the big dogs. Exactly right. You know, you're kind of, and and I think that it, it's it is unabashedly esoteric, unabashedly academic, um, but gets at the heart right of, of the trivia phenomenon, which is both right for its own sake, you know, Irish, Irish gratia, gratia artists again, um, but also gets to some sort of cultural knowledge that we should know things like this, at least in certain kind of cocktail parties, I guess. And now, obviously, you know, the buzzers, quiz bowl competitions are, are a pretty modern phenomenon. Um, I'm sure, Ken, you could tell us about the origins of college bowl. It's in the 50s, right? That's when that, that, that first shows up. Yeah, it's it's a result of the of the quiz show boom of the 50s and the mm -hmm. hit radio shows. Um, somebody came up with the idea to do one with collegiate teams, you know, in the same way that mm -hmm. a team from Brown could play against Seton Hall in uh, basketball. You know, what if they played... Mm -hmm. What if they played an academic show? And that, that was a, a radio and then a TV hit. Um, and then even once it lost its TV deal, it kind of continued in, in darkness. You know, it kind of became <laughs> a, an informal circuit held in the basements of kind of dingy humanities buildings on campuses <laughs> all over the country by night. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I, you know, occasionally it comes back on the air. There's that Peyton Manning kind of college bowl-ish show that's on now. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's just a reflection of the game show fad and then the mm -hmm. fact that it built up an audience that kept wanting to play it even once the cameras were off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, so obviously there's nothing that's quite like that in antiquity. Um, but there is um, an interesting sort of parallel both to college itself um, and to college bowl. So, you know, for the Greeks and Romans, higher ed was the rhetorical school. Um, we learn to be a polished orator in various public contexts, you know, so that in theory, at least, you can go and address your city's council, get them to change, you know, the water mains or, you know, dispel the barbarians, whatever else you might be doing. And, and so usually you enter these things when you're in your mid-teens and you stay in school till you're about 20, if your parents have enough money. And you spend all of your time um, with a few professors who are tenured, actually, in a few cases. There are, are endowed chairs by cities or by the Roman Empire itself. Um, learning the all the tricks of the trade uh, for how to be a great orator, which involves a colossal amount of random knowledge uh, about the classics, which for them were things like Homer, Virgil, um, the, even our, our, really our canon of classical literature, and know every character um, from these works, every little bit about the life of Demosthenes, for example, you know, to know a few things very, very well and be able to deploy that knowledge at will in your orations. So when they're knocking up to ordinary college-style hijinks, we hear about things like uh, wild parties in the streets of Antioch, for example, about people pulling pranks and professors. It is very kind of animal house, you know, but 200 AD. Um, there are these the, the star attractions at, or rather the, the finishing examinations at these rhetorical schools are things called declamations. Um, these orations you deliver um, before your audience of your fellow students, which are competitive. So you're all given the same theme on which to declaim. And whoever does the most ingeniously, in other words, by using the most absurd knowledge um, in their declamation, wins as kind of given the prize. And often the themes are ridiculous. So they'll make, they'll make up a, a, a law, for example, or a, a situation. So my, my favorite one, for example, um, so the, the, the law is that there's a priestess who is found to have violated her vows. And so she's flung from a cliff. That, that's the law. But she survives the flinging and is, you know, safe and sound at the bottom of the cliff. And the debate is, should we toss her off again? Or is the goddess satisfied with the initial flinging? Um, and so you have to decide whether or not, you know, the goddess has been appeased, whatever else. But it's not so much the argument you make, it's how you make it. And it's how much um, random but still recognized knowledge you can lard out your argument with. Um, and so it really becomes a sort of one-upsmanship one on who can cite Demosthenes at greatest length or who knows, you know, the name of Aeneas's nurse's half-brother's dog um, and can mention that casually in their oration. 
So there's no buzzers involved. Uh, and, and the podium is you declaiming before a small crowd of, you know, cognoscenti. But when it comes down to it, I think the atmosphere, at least, is very reminiscent of College Quiz Bowl, where you have this canon um, of knowledge. And you're demonstrating complete mastery of this canon is the key to your getting both social cachet in that little circle and to becoming emerging victorious in this, these little competitions they hold in these you know, mock uh, orations. The fact that the knowledge must be presented off the top of your head, you know, that that's the, mm-hmm. that's the marker of quality and education and preparedness. Um, that's an interesting question in trivia in general, you know, like if trivia is cultural literacy, mm-hmm. is there actually value in knowing this stuff? Um, because the direction today, I think, is in education, as in other things, mm-hmm. is very much like, well, let's teach them how to look this stuff up. You know, it doesn't matter right. which facts you can pop off with. And obviously, quiz bowl mm-hmm. and many Jeopardy and all these other pursuits are really at odds with that. It really is, you know, the the unspoken ethos there is it actually matters what's in your head right. um, in a way that is qualitatively different than what you can look up. Um, mm-hmm. And I've always been kind of a believer in that. And it's interesting that that, that was held as a marker of uh, of quality and an achievement in ancient times, too. Oh, yeah. If you had notes, you would failed. You know, you're the guy. Oh, he's got cribs. Oh, man. This guy, this guy's a chump. Um right. And like you said, it is when it comes down to it, a matter of cultural literacy. So obviously these become very ridiculous. You know, again, knowing Aeneas's nurses, you know, half-brother's dog is not going to help you in daily life until it does. Until – so like the Emperor Tiberius, for example, who had various foibles, but um, he liked to quiz his courtiers on these random questions. And so like he would ask them like, you know, bits about, you know, some Greek poet, you know, or some Greek tyrant. And he once caught one of his courtiers trying to figure out the questions of the day, like looking up, like, you know, through the different works of this poet. And he punished the guy. He like exiled him. It's like he was trying to cheat at the game. And so obviously having the emperor Tiberius's favor, you know, who this very curmudgeonly then become then actually tyrannical emperor might not be the thing you want, but getting it meant knowing this stuff. We even have like um, Hadrian arguing with people about whether he was right about some little bit of trivia. And uh, like once there was a famous orator named, uh, I think it was Polemon, and uh, sorry, Feverinus. And um, so afterward, you know, he, one of his colleagues says, hey, you were right. You know, the emperor was wrong. He's like, yeah, the emperor has 30 legions, though. So, you know, <laughs> the emperor gets to win the argument. Uh, but so there were obviously that this idea that you could talk to emperors with the right preparation, that knowing this absurd, these absurd bits of trivia, which again is different from our idea of trivia. It's not really trivial at all. And maybe trivia itself is not. We can talk about that in a moment. Um, you know, could get you somewhere in life, at least in the emperor's court, if he was a twisted weirdo like you know, Tiberius was. I love that you can get exiled if you if you cheat on the question of the day. I think more <laughs> exactly. coffee shops should do that today. <laughs> right, <obviously>. right. <laughs> if somebody's got their phone out trying to get a free latte. Exactly. Right. It's like, are you going to other Starbucks, but not this one? Not never again. Um and so, yeah, the idea of the Renaissance man is very old. And like I said, we're, we're kind of losing that now um, with our technology, which is just the ultimate crib that, you know, you have your handheld computer that can give you anything you want unless you have a good signal. And I'm sure, you know, implants or whatever else are coming, you know, <laughs> where you never have to actually think again about these things. But, but anyway, um, so a fascination with trivia is obviously as old in some ways as, as civilization, you know, at least the idea with esoterica um, or the bits of culture that have only limited practical application. And in light of that fact, um, you know, is trivia as we know it only a modern phenomenon because the media caught up with it? You know, because we now have this way of, you know, broadcasting trivia the way we couldn't before. Um, or is something else at play? Did it kind of all the factors only come into place, you know, in 1927, you know, with the first trivia book? Um, you know, what is it that makes trivia a modern thing? Why is there no Roman or Renaissance or steampunk, you know, jeopardy? It's a big question. I just wonder if you have any ideas on that. It is. I mean, it's the ultimate question. And I'm tempted to mm-hmm. say things like, well, you know, it's only in modernity that we have the leisure to spend an hour yeah. a day on a, on a crossword mm-hmm. or a quiz or whatever. But, you know, you're talking about classical times where there actually was a class that, that had mm-hmm. abundant leisure and, you know, the more decadent the hobby, the better, right? <laughs> right. Um, and if, if by all accounts, you know, they didn't come up with game shows, it, maybe it is something about the canon of, information um mm-hmm. you know that uh a lot of it is the fact that there's more popular culture now yes. and this mm-hmm. this gives a popular appeal to these question and answer games mm-hmm. that you can go to a bar and it's not going to be questions about ballet and the franco-prussian war but there's <laughs> also going to be stuff about 
YouTubers and the Grammys and, right. and celebrity marriage scandals and, and all the rest. Um, I'm sure there's, you know, there's pre-modern and ancient equivalents <laughs> to that as, as well. Um, but just, it seems to be something about the fact that we actually had this, you know, a critical mass of, of knowledge in our past mm -hmm. and solid reference works, indexing, right, right. not just, not just kind of the scattershot effect of like, here's some crazy stuff out of Pliny, but you know, <laughs> Diderot and then Britannica. Right, and right. There's now a reference canon as well that is essentially an answer key for this mm -hmm. sport. Um, that may be part of it. And you imagine, right, someone with, you know, the, the, the 37 books of Pliny, all those scrolls. Wait a minute, wait a minute, you know. Thumbing <laughs> we're going to have to go to the judges. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Some poor so dude okay. in the background. Yeah, exactly. Wait, wait. Next scroll. And, and, and I'm, I'm sure you're right that there was no true mass culture in the way there is now in the Roman world. You know, literacy is probably about 10%, we think, something like that. People can't even read, let alone go through this very long, expensive education about, you know, Aeneas's, you know, obscure relatives. Um, and uh, I think that that's right. It, it's very consciously um, a pursuit for a very small elite. And they're, that's part of why they do it, actually. They're, they're kind of showing off how very elite they are um, in these pursuits. I guess only with things like mass, mass education, you know, public education, um, and you know, things like the, the GI Bill later on, where people do have exposure to this stuff, you know, by the millions and millions, um, is it possible for it to be yeah, a true mass phenomenon in a way that never could be um, in the Roman very nucleated world? Yeah, if there's not an agreed upon canon, the questions don't right. work. If there's not a bunch mm -hmm. of things in every subject that a room full of people will know, it fails. And that's a big challenge right. for, for trivia and other quiz contests today. You know, what does that canon become mm -hmm. in an increasingly segmented and fractured and, and siloized right. world? Um, it's an interesting thing that it's a public service that Jeopardy can provide, actually, is to kind of mm -hmm. perpetuate whatever its canon is. And that leads to a lot of discussions right. on the show. You know, we have all these kind of old timey legacy categories, opera and the Bible. And mm -hmm. to what degree do we valorize that? You know, what can we do to bring mm -hmm. in a more diverse canon of uh of you know historical figures and literary works from you know more women than white more, more people of color more you know how do you mm -hmm. you know because you can't just say well we'll wait till everybody knows more works by women of color and then we'll ask about them. right like no like there's if you're jeopardy there's more proactive things you can do to the canon um mm -hmm. but it's um you know it's kind of a heisenberg thing where you change it by touching it right right and, and, and even I know Quiz Bowl, for example, you know, I, I never was in the elite leagues of question writers, but there's this idea that right there, there's the old school canon, which is very much based in, you know, your college literature and history classes. And the idea that we can't expand beyond this, but, you know, then people complain, you know, it's no longer, you know, it's too far outside. How far is too far? And like you said, yeah, it's very much, uh, you, you don't know until you see it. Um, and so on, on that note, so you wrote Brainiac in 2006, I think it was, and you know, the, I guess a lot changes, you know, in the world of trivia since, and maybe, maybe it hasn't, but I mean, what changes have you seen, you know, since you wrote Brainiac and where do you see trivia and Jeopardy going in the future? Mm, you know, in North America, I feel like we've seen kind of a boom in kind of casual pub quiz mm -hmm in a way that was you know, familiar to, to British and Commonwealth observers before, but had not really made much of an American footprint. In the last 15, 20 years, it's, it's gotten much bigger. You know, you'll, you'll be hard pressed to find a, a bar that doesn't have a, a trivia mm -hmm. night once a week. Um, so the idea that it's not just for a small group of, of elites or quiz bowl playing weirdos or Jeopardy watching <laughs> grandmas, you know, that, it, that it might be something that we all do for fun occasionally, I think is, has really spread and that's good for the game. Um, oh, absolutely. Certainly the canon changing. We just talked about trying to modernize the canon, trying to, I noticed that when Jeopardy, for example, has a pop music category, we're very quick to put that on social media mm -hmm. and not the category about classical ballet. Um, <laughs> You're right. There's this idea that you can build a younger, hipper audience if you say, hey, you know, we're going to cover we're going to cover all the things. Mm -hmm. And that includes Doja Cat, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah, right. And, uh, you know, I don't know what the other changes are. I'm, you know, I'm worried about the kind of fracturization we talked about, right. that maybe trivia cultural literacy can't survive a world in which everybody is laser focused on mm -hmm. their team, their band, their hobby, their career path um, to the exclusion of, you know, of knowing 
you know, which countries border which other countries or which authors right. lived in which periods and, you know, the kind of thing that would have, a lot of these games would have been built on 20 or 120 years ago. Um, yeah. So it's an open question, but it does seem to be a, as, as big a mass culture phenomenon as it's ever been. And maybe not a boom and bust cycle anymore. You know, maybe mm -hmm. it's kind of infiltrated every aspect of the culture and the internet has made us all comfortable with kind of having these kind of geeky pursuits and finding others who have them and mm -hmm. not feeling like any, there's any shame or stigma to the degree that it's, it's just kind of infiltrated every, every aspect of our life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we expect to, to play along with a trivia question at the coffee shop or to watch Jeopardy with friends or, or whatever it may be. Yeah. I guess that at least for, for some of us, it's kind of a comforting thought that it's always there, you know, to some degree anyway. Um, and like I said, the internet, of course, it's easy to drown in information on the internet. You know, it's, it's made so much information so accessible. Um, by the same token, he has made, you know, things like, you know, traditional trivia, you know, more readily available to, well, the whole world, if you care to indulge in it. Um, I always remember like, like the Quizwell Packet Archives, which were all online even, you know, in the mid-2000s. You go through, you know, thousands and thousands of questions. And then you did, you know, it was your own infinite set of flashcards if you wanted it. Um, so it's fascinating stuff and uh, yeah, a bright future. I think I about... Think. I think about how mainstream it is on Reddit now for people to be like, mm -hmm. you know, you'll never guess what I just learned about koalas or, you know. Oh, yeah. Like that would have that would have been the weirdest kid in class when I was in elementary school. Yeah, right. And now, now it's, got... we just kind of recognize that, no, that stigma was stupid. This is actually kind of mm -hmm. universal. Everybody wants to know that koala fingerprints are identical to human ones right. or, uh, or that, you know, we all have gold in our bodies from supernovas or, you know, whatever mm -hmm. kind of the, the awe-inspiring you know, makes you blink for a second fact of the day is. Right, yeah. yeah. It's amazing that Reddit, TikTok, you name it, these kind of, you know, the fun facts, which are really, you know, knowledge masquerading as something fun, right? You know, and there it is. YouTube um, channels. YouTube channels. Oh, yeah. I, for I'm, example. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm a product of it, right? Exactly. Without that, You're I'm part not, of the problem. I'm part of the problem. I know, yeah. Shoving it down America's throats every Friday. That's um, great. <laughs> well, anyway, um, Ken, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful and very interesting uh, discussion about trivia. I think that, you know, I, even though I was talking, thinking about more parallels between antiquity and modernity, it's about all the differences. Um, some human impulses kind of transcend culture, I think, and, and, and trivia is definitely one of them. Um, so anyway, for those who have never heard of uh, the book Brainiac, it's a fantastic read. I highly recommend it. Um, Ken, you've written, I think, a dozen books now, right? Uh, Keep, uh, yes, but some of them the are children's books, so that really pads my total. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, all the books I've read by Ken have been a wonderful read. So his website, congenius.com, fantastic. You can see them all there. Um, and anyway, Ken, uh, thanks so much for this discussion. And to everyone, uh, thanks very much for listening. Thanks for having me.